All right, cool. So now we're going to kick it back off with episode seven after some technical difficulties and some bathroom breaks. I'm Rob Pasercha, and joining me are my co-hosts, David B. Jacobs and Devin Shepard, and we are Cadaver Dogs. How's it going today, guys? Hello. My bladder is now empty. I'm excited to get moving. Uh, let's bring on the brine. <laughs> <laughs> I am Devin Shepard. I am a producer, director, and writer. Uh, You can watch my work on Shudder with our feature film, A Nightmare Wakes, as well as Bloody Disgusting's World of Death with our short film, Attention. And I'm David B. Jacobs. I'm a writer, director, script supervisor, and horror addict. You can find my short film, One Last Call, on Blind Raven Productions' YouTube channel. And I'm Rob Asercha. I am a grip for Local 52 and the owner and runner of Whimsy Productions, LLC. Uh, I'd like to plug our Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Cadaver Dogs Pod. Please check us out, leave a review, tell us what you want to hear next. So to kick us off on our first film, a very creepy thing with some old school tech media uh, is Devin Shepard. Yes, our first film is a classic J-horror, Ringu, from 1998, directed by Hideo Nakata. The rumor is, you watch the tape, you have seven days to live. But after several teenagers all die on the same day due to mysterious circumstances, Asakawa begins to think it's more than just a rumor. Asakawa, a single mother and professional news reporter, sets out to find the origin of the story and comes across the tape itself. She watches it. Then calls upon her ex-husband, a math professor, to help her finish solve the mystery before she's scheduled to die on the seventh day. Right away, first instinctual thought on the film. It definitely feels a little more Western, right? I mean, yeah, the characters were a lot different and the acting was a lot different than we are used to watching in a J-horror, or at least the ones that you showed me, Rob, as as I'm new to the J-horror genre. But um, I still wouldn't say they're fully developed. I still have a lot of issues with with the character development. I mean, I mentioned it in my summary, essentially, um, that, you know, they present the the issues in these movies through the characters, but then they don't follow through, I think. Um, you know, they show Asakawa as a working mother. They show her as, you know, um, struggling to to balance work life and, and parenthood. Um, mm. But then just kind of don't go any deeper than that and we lose her character halfway through the movie when um her ex-husband takayama comes in Hmm. see i kind of disagree i think we are given the portrait of kind of a a journalist consumed by her work and that kind of separated her from her family in a way but at the same time it's it's her work through investigating this uh videotape that re-engages her with her husband and that's there that is and i I think there's an exploration of her uh, relationship with her husband and her child and how maybe she was keeping them too separate from her work and that had they been more engaged from the get-go, would, they would have had a stronger relationship. In that way, I do think it has some pretty deep-seated like character development. Uh, maybe it's not explicitly stated and there are some odd character choices throughout. I, I totally agree with you. I just think it could have gone a lot deeper. Um I think I think it it goes halfway and doesn't doesn't go all the way into to developing this this female character or developing more into the into the characters. But totally agree with everything you just said. I mean, especially at the at the point where um, they do a really good job about hinting at you know what went wrong in the marriage and 
why these two are no longer together. I mean, going directly off of what you just said, at one point, um, the ex-husband makes a crack at her and is like, I, now I got to go make my deadline, um, showing exactly that, like, she had issues balancing that, that work life along with her um, relationship. Yeah, so I'm going to mostly agree with Devin here. Um, I don't think the character is necessarily underdeveloped, but I, I think that a lot of her development gets ignored in the second half of the movie. She starts off uh, very strong, very independent, and I really like that aspect of the character, but then at a certain point, she is just uh, devastated so much by what happens that she just basically has an emotional breakdown and is incapable of moving forward, and her husband has to do everything for her. There's a part during the climax at the well when she faints which okay fine she's tired she faints whatever then a husband has to climb out of the well and she's like oh why do we even move on what's the point then she has he has to literally slap her across the face and, and remind her that her child is in danger and i'm like come on come on guys <laughs> but even before that my whole question is why does she call on him in the first place oh she, yeah it's it's like yeah absolutely he's a, he's a um, math professor like what and we don't find out till way later <laughs> that he like can help the case because hmm. he has these powers um but that's not established for another hour like she randomly goes to his apartment and is like help me i'm a professional <laughs> news reporter that fell upon something that's too big for me to understand they do have a pretty handy band-aid in his uh dead zone powers so um <laughs> takiyama has the same power as um Christopher Walken in the Dead Zone, where he can touch somebody and kind of has this like ESP connection to their past, etc. Uh, yeah, he's not he's not Christopher Walken. He's definitely a lot weaker than that. But he does have the same type of thing, right? He touches people and he has this like connection to their past or whatever. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense that she would ask him. But I, I would also err on the side of she probably just missed him, and this was her excuse to bridge their relationship was through her work, and that's kind of how she copes with everything. Which this movie is critical of work in general, I think. Very much so. Yeah. yeah. Critical of work. That's interesting. How so? Well, I think it's critical of her work and how it, it causes a wedge between her and her family. Uh, and it's mm-hmm. the only way she deals with everything in her life. She uses her work to speak with her husband. And ultimately, it brings her husband down as well as uh, brings her child into it. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It causes a wedge between them as well. Like she has to drop her kid off at, at grandpa's because she's so busy working on the case. And then it's also that the kid gets compromised and almost potentially killed by watching the videotape. Exactly. And the, the most heart-wrenching moments of this entire movie, and they, they do this multiple times throughout, but they show the kid just being sad walking away alone and leaving <laughs> yeah. the house there's this one shot where he just looks up the stairs after his mom and it's like Mah. um and i i wrote this down in my notes is like once he reaches the grandpa's house and he's playing and having fun and they're all laughing as a family i'm like i love this moment it shows joy yay family <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty cool but i think it also is critical of the husband's work relationship too because um with with his math he's probably a math professor uh, on purpose because mathematics are kind of like dehumanized there's no human connection with mathematics it's kind of like a hey. really, well it is, it is a theory <laughs> it's a theoretical math exercise right? 
Yeah, yeah, sure. But uh, <laughs> math is like a theoretical exercise, right? You engage with numbers. It's kind of like abstract concept of the world rather than engaging with the world directly. And uh, mm. that, I think that's kind of his coping mechanism to get away from this overly interconnectedness he has with people just by touching them. And then obviously okay. there's some sort of affair going on with the student or whatever who's obviously an yeah, unhealthy so relationship. Yeah, so I don't think that the math is him disengaging from all people. I think it's him disengaging from his family specifically because he still engages with the student who he's having an affair with that is uh, – we're we're not supposed to like that he's having an affair with a student, so that that's a good thing. Well, he's not he's not having an affair, right? I mean, I thought he was. Well, no, it's I not mean, like, they're, yeah, because he's not yeah, married. Because he's not married. I just want to like hone in a little bit on what you said, David. I do like that we show that he is equally obsessive with his with his with his work as um, Asakawa yeah. is with hers. And I even question, and this is something that I I wonder um, what your guys' interpretation is. Mm. But does he? have a relationship with his son at all does his son even know that that's his father we only see them interact for one quick moment when they're outside in the rain and the child um yoichi looks up at at him and just stares and then walks away so i question if they even if the kid even knows that it's his dad that's a really good point i thought of it but i think you're right yeah and that's a good scene but i'd argue that yeah they're, they're the same problem that she has with her work he has with his own Mm-hmm. And that uh, it's the failure of trying to separate work and relationships, which the film is concerned with, because he tries to do that. And then he ends up dating his uh, immature student. Right. Mm-hmm. And they are they are very critical of, of the student teacher relationship uh, because she's so immature that when they walk away for a minute, uh, she starts messing with his own work just because she meets the ex-wife for a moment. Right. And she starts erasing numbers on the chalkboard or whatever. And you're like, oh, yeah, she's basically dating a child. And we're supposed to know that. Yeah. She changes a plus sign to a minus. And the last thing he does before he dies is notice that change and just like put the cross back in. He just chuckles to himself. like, (laughs) I have no idea what that is about. Mm -hmm. Like, why is that the last thing he does? It's so it's it's very strange. I feel like it's saying something, but I don't know what. Well, it's it's saying that he's absorbed with his work until the end, right? I think so. Yeah, like the last thing that we see is him mulling over this this problem, and that he, um, yeah, like is kind of ignoring the fact that his seven days is up, right? I mean, I know that he thinks mm-hmm. that he solved the the issue, but um, it's it's interesting not to watch have him be watching the clock in that moment. Like, I feel like if I thought I solved the issue, I would still be like. I'm would be watching the clock. I'd be like, okay, I just want to make sure. Am I am I gonna die? Mm-hmm. And maybe that's it because the 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 last thing he does is solve a different problem, and he's chuckling to himself like, ha ha, I noticed what was wrong and I fixed it. Uh, but the the bigger problem mm. he has not actually fixed. And you're right, Devin, because who watches this movie when you watch this movie for the first time? There are really two parts to it. There's the part where you watch it. And there's the part seven days later where you just take a moment to yourself. You look at the time and you go, okay, I'm good. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's yes. really, th- there is a ticking time bomb going on throughout this film. And then if it stays with you, there's a ticking time bomb going on a week later. So I watched this movie about a week ago. So that means I had only four days ago. I guess I have three days left. So this will be my last podcast. <laughs> yeah, I watched it three days ago. So I have four days left. 
Yeah, yeah. So maybe you'll find me with a heart attack and an insane, terrified expression on my face. <laughs> How much time do you have left, Devin? Uh, I watched it last night, so I'm good for <laughs> another few days. I'll carry the pod. That's okay. It's okay. okay. I, I, I did actually record the movie, so I think I'm set. Oh, you made a copy. Oh, interesting. I did. Wait, I did. yes. Okay. Mm. If we're watching it through a streaming service, which is thus a copy... Which is also a copy of a like English version of a the copy of a Japanese version. How many copies do we have to get through to what we're like okay? Yeah, and and once you copy, you can rewatch it, right? Here's a fan theory. So at the end of the movie, even though uh uh, what's her name, Asakawa, even mm-hmm. though Asakawa uh survives, she still sees the hooded the the towel man in the reflection of the television. So she's still getting visions from Sadako. So Sadako still has that link to her. And we never actually know exactly what Sadako's endgame is. Like, what if she infects everyone in the world at some point? Then just like, great, well, you're all dead now. Like, she still has this connection is open. Even if she doesn't kill you. Yeah, I... It's an interesting theory. theory. Yeah, not one I agree with. I don't (laughs) think that is Sadako's um, image. I think it is um, Takayama's image, No. Because it's after he's dead. No, it's not Sadako's image. It's the it's the towel man. I know, yeah, but I think the, I think the, the one video. projecting it is actually the father, her ex husband, not actually Sadako oh, herself. That's interesting. Because it's him. Know? It's him explaining. Because she, because um, Asakawa asks, she's like, "What did you do that I didn't?" And then the response is that image in 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 the television. Um, that actually makes a lot of sense because that also ties in when Yoichi watches the video. Uh, she, he, she asks why. He says, uh, Tomoko, his cousin who dies in the beginning of the movie, uh, told him to. He says, Tomo-chan told me to. Uh, there's a part in the movie where Asakawa says it should have ended with Tomo. Uh, she, she's basically saying if I just hadn't watched the video, the chain would have ended. But she's wrong because if you die, then Sadako will still use your ghost to make someone else watch the video Hmm. so whether Hmm. you're alive or dead you still pass it on yeah yeah but only if you have access to the video i mean potentially if the video was like destroyed or hidden without being copied you could have ended the curse and died she can just make another she made the video after she died Well, well yeah who made the video sadika she did. Uh, I don't know if it's. I I don't know where I heard this. I think it might come from one of the sequels or a prequel or something. Yeah. But Sadako's actual power is that she can imprint images on things. She can imprint images in your mind, and she can imprint images on physical material. Hmm. So she the the reason that you don't see a re, the camera reflection. They point out there's a shot in the tape where you would have seen the camera reflection. Uh, there was no camera. Sadako just created the image. Mm-hmm. Uh, David sent this really interesting article too that talks about um, the origins of of the film and what they're based upon. And there was mm-hmm. actually a doctor that did these ESP experiments and talks about um, this idea that he has called photography, which is exactly what David just explained, right? It's the ability yes. to imprint thoughts on photography and video, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And the patient who had that power was also named Sadako. (gasps) And was described as having a second personality that is a goblin, which, of course, goes back to the movie with uh, Frolic frolic and Brine, Goblins Be Thine. 
Gotcha. Um, he had another patient who is named Chizuko, as opposed to Shizuko, who is the Sadako's mother in the movie. And that one has a very similar story where he tried to show people that she was psychic, and but then as all of his experiments were getting debunked, a, pe- a newspaper singled out Chizuko, who was one of his first experiments, called her abilities doubtful, and the the ridicule upset her so much that allegedly that uh, drove her to suicide, mm. just like Shizuko throws herself into the volcano. Yeah, it was so fascinating. And we'll definitely link that article in, in the show notes. But um, this is why I thought this was such a good film to follow up from our last discussion, which was The Town That Dreaded Sundown and Amityville Horror, because all in that, I see a lot of like commentary on how we report and use images and use our words um, to tell stories. And I think this has a little bit to do with, you know, media and photography and film as well but really this whole entire movie is based around telling stories and telling rumors and whereas one rumor is this urban legend of a videotape the Mm -hmm. other that's presented is the the rumors of reporters and the media and how they report on certain events in history or how they treat certain subjects in history such as um sadako's mother um and how they um, basically drove her to suicide. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Especially when Takayama says that the media hasn't changed much in 40, 40 years. He, he is saying that we sensationalize these um, these happenings, these instances, and not at least for the betterment of everyone. Uh, and, you know, this does tie into our conversation last week of whether or not the filmmakers were justified or the author of the book in this case was justified in reusing actual people for this fictitious horror. And rather, rather than attempting to tell a true story in this, in this case, like it was for the town that dreaded sundown or the Amityville horror, supposedly true, uh, what he's doing is he's he's really is sensationalizing it. He's creating a fiction based on the reality. Exactly, well, like it's a I straight. Actually, go ahead, David. I would actually argue that it's uh, more responsible this way that he's not presenting it as non-fictional. Uh, he may take inspiration from real life. Mm-hmm. But he's also taking inspiration from folklore and fantasy. There's a there's a Japanese uh, folk tale about a woman in the Middle Ages. The Lord of the Castle was obsessed with her. She was like a maid in the in the in the pantry or whatever, and she rejected his advances, which he was not happy about, and kept trying to come after her. He basically threatened to frame her for robbing him if she did not if she would not be with him and in some versions of the story he winds up killing her and throwing her down a well and others she jumps down the well herself mm-hmm. but there is an actual well that you can find that uh, according to the folk tale she would crawl out of the well and haunt him every night for the rest of his life <laughs> that's creepy so you're saying that this film in itself is kind of a copy of a copy of a copy of a story and the way that we've told this story yeah. has just changed over time much to rob's cold quote that he he said about media hasn't changed much in 40 years media mm-hmm. hasn't changed much since whenever that story you just told david was originated right it's just like we all tell mm-hmm. ourselves stories over over time and which is why I love that the ending is that she has to copy the story because in order for anything to live on, we have to keep the story alive. It's us who keeps these stories alive. 
Um, and it's also the power of the curse. There is a lot of talk about this. It's kind of like a central theme. And the power of the curse is spread through rumor and retelling. Right. So by us doing this, like we're perpetuating this, the curse of the woman in the well. And that's also a very common uh, trope in Japanese folktale. I, I forget what the monster mm-hmm. is called, but there's a specific monster in Japanese folklore uh, that is this woman with long black hair and a white dress that uh, comes after you. And it, it's and it's a vengeful spirit that she was killed mm-hmm. in some terrible way and now wants to come and haunt you. Also relevant to this whole conversation about our telling of stories is the fact that in this movie, watching the story is what causes you to be haunted, that it is the horror coming to life. Right. Mm-hmm. But the only way to prevent the horror from killing you is to pass it on even more. So it's this yep. idea of like legacy. Right? right. The horror is after its own legacy. It's after like a global infection. Which is why I think it's so brilliant that the, you know, the themes are legacy, but then we show it through the tale of a family and through a family that is suffering um, because there's so much argument that children are our legacy, less so right. than our work. And there's a constant back and forth, I think, with human beings. It's like, I'm hungry to do work because I think that will be my legacy, but there's also my children. And how do I balance that? Yeah, well, I, I think it's we're going to circle back to it. its criticism of work overriding the family unit. Because yeah. just as the uh, the cursed girl Sudoku, uh, Sudaku, Sudoku, how Sadako. do you say her name? <laughs> I think the pronunciation is usually the emphasis is usually on the the first syllable, so probably Sadako, yeah. but I, I could be wrong. I'm just gonna call her the um, Ringu girl. So the Ringu girl is concerned with her own cursed legacy, and that that's what's traumatic. But it, it's the work ethic, the overemphasis on work ethic that brings out this cursed legacy. And that if, if our main character is more concerned with their own human legacy, then they could have possibly prevented this problem. And they would have yeah. had a stronger family unit. Yeah. I agree. My biggest issue with this film is when this woman watches the movie and she's like, fuck, I'm going to die in seven days. Um, okay, let me call up my ex-husband to then also watch the movie <laughs> who will then also die in seven days, which will then leave our child as an orphan. Like, she just, like, it doesn't, like, pop into her head that maybe she should have someone else besides the father be of her fair. child to watch the movie. Yeah, but she to didn't be believe fair, it. she doesn't want him to watch the movie. She specifically tells him, no, don't watch it. And she's like, nah, I'm gonna watch it. You, oh, you go oh, outside, shit. I'm gonna watch it. Yeah, that, that does happen. <laughs> but But she also doesn't believe it. But what's what's crazy is after Takayama takes a photo of her and her face is smeared, he's just like, eh, not real. It's like, you fucking kidding? Like, what? <laughs> yeah, and he's it. supposed to be the one with, like, ESP, right? Shouldn't he, like, have some sort of feeling that, oh, fuck, I just touched her and, uh, yeah, she's going to die in seven days. It's kind of weird that the guy who has supernatural powers is also the one who'd be like, ha, supernatural shit's not real. Right. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you know, a little bit of ESP and ghosts are different. Um, but at the same time, he's probably just trying to comfort his wife, his ex-wife, uh, who, I mean, there's still there's still a lot of love in the relationship. It's just been, like, unfulfilled. I did, Yeah, I, I did really love the portrayal of this relationship. I thought it was complicated. I mm-hmm. thought it showed, it was realistic. It's like, mm-hmm. here's this woman that I used to love. Here's this man that I used to love, and we have a child together. Um, mm-hmm. And, yeah, the moment where they're, like, sitting next to each other and he grabs her hand I was like yes that that seems like a real like ex-marriage to me Hmm. yes I agree um I I I just 
wish that they remained on even footing throughout the movie. Um, well, yeah. well, she comes out on top yeah. at the end. I mean, after all the help he did. You see, what's interesting is everything he did at the end of the movie doesn't matter. She solved it in the first 20 minutes of the film when she recorded the tape. Okay, but if we went with my theory, which is that um, Takayama is the like ghost figure with the with the sheath over his head, then he solved it, <laughs> and she was just like, no, 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 Cause, no, no, because she she calls out, she's like, help me, please, I don't know what, and then someone else has to solve it for her. No, she doesn't, she does not solve one fucking thing in this movie after minute thirty. No, no, she solves it for herself. He helps her to solve it for her kid, which is cool because honestly. Okay. Would you have drawn that connection of, oh, I copied the tape? I would have never drawn that. I would, no. The kid would have just died. And I, I, I really appreciated that. They also put all their marbles into the idea that, like, oh, the well is definitely at the cabin because the phone rang at the cabin. Like, there are a million reasons that the phone might have rung the first time and not later. Right, right. But what's also interesting is that uh, Takayama has uh, ESP in relation from person-to-person communication, but... Which is fine. That's that's kind of seen in like the good light, the good type of supernatural. But the bad type of super, supernatural is a connection to like inanimate objects and, and to non-living entities like um, like Sada- uh, the Ringu girls. Sadika. Sadika's uh, mother has a connection to the sea. And, and this connection to the sea of this like nether realm presence is what actually impregnates her supposedly with the uh, Sadika, who is is evil more or less in the movie. So there's yeah, this, like this that. idea that, yeah. that we should, well, again, with the work relationship versus the familial relationship, is we should stress our connections with people rather than our connections with things. That's interesting. That also fits yeah. with, no, that is that, that makes a lot of sense because then it also fits in with, uh, again, it's the object itself is what's going to do you mm-hmm. in. It's your relationship with this thing, the television, literally the thing you are watching when you're watching this movie is what's going to kill you. Mm-hmm. And I love that it's yeah. she doesn't even use a physical means by which to kill you. She just wills you to die. It's as though they are being scared to death, mm-hmm. which is like, oh, yeah. So if I'm really scared of this movie, I'm, I'm, I'm going to die. Yeah. I, I also <laughs> love how she comes out of the screen, not just from a visual standpoint, because it's cool, but because it, it really like solidifies the metaphor that the things we witness can't do affect us on a personal level. So like the media is actually coming out and touching you. Although what she does is she makes you see scary shit in your head and then you die. One of the articles I read had just like a picture of the well. And Mm -hmm. I just thought to myself, like they, they seriously missed an opportunity to like sneak in a gift of just like showing her hands coming up and just scaring the shit out of everyone reading. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck that dude. That would have been cool. I know we don't want to go into the American remake, but I just want to make the statement that the American remake gave me so many nightmares. I used to have to, when my friend as a kid, she had a TV in her room and I would make her put her TV in her closet when I came over because I could not look at it. (laughs) (laughs) That's cool. My sister always describes the, the ring, the American, the ring as the the scariest movie she's ever seen so <laughs> yeah I, my, my viewing got ruined because i saw it in 2002 when i was what like 10 at the uh at the theater and uh i was with my grandma and midway through the movie she's like this is horse shit this is stupid it just ruined the whole movie for me she's like this isn't scary at all it's just which is, and you should tell her, wait seven days, Grandma, wait seven <laughs> days, and then tell me. 
It's like, where's pumpkin head? This sucks, you know? Oh my god, your grandma likes pumpkin head? Oh, my, my grandma used to have 7,000 VHS tapes. She oh had god. every pumpkin head, every Trancers, Snake Island 5, The Watchers, all those great B-horror classics. Your grandma sounds amazing. Yeah. Yeah, my grandma's pretty cool. Let's take a break right here to hear a word from our sponsor. Hello, my name is Brucker Nurse, and I want to tell you about my fun horror movie podcast called Autopsy of a Horror Movie. On my show, I like to have fun dissecting out what makes a horror movie scary, what worked for it, what didn't, what types of fears does it play off of. Is it an allegory for any sort of message? I don't know, but let's find out. Also, I like to watch slashers. I'm a big slasher guy, so I'll watch a slasher and do a kill grade for it. I will cover the kills and I will tell you how I would grade it based on shock, method, style points, and a fourth category that is a reflection of the movie. Besides those, I'll have fun with special topic episodes, commentary tracks, interviews with guests, including some Shutter directors, so I just like to have a fun time over here. If any of this sounds interesting to you or you just want to come check me out, please Head over to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere they listen to podcasts and search for Autopsy of a Horror Movie. Also, be sure to find me on Instagram, at Brucker Horror, where you get fun updates and some cool little posts that I do. Thanks for listening, and I hope that you get to enjoy the show, and I'll see you on Instagram. Bye. Now we're back after our commercial break with our second film, A Tale of Intrigue and Mystery. So just like Devin... The co-writer of our next movie had nightmares after watching the American remake of The Ring. In these nightmares, he discovered a box of Super 8 films in his attic, one of which depicted an entire family getting hanged. This inspired our next movie, Sinister, directed by Scott Derrickson and written by Derrickson and C. Robert Cargill. Uh, true crime writer Ellison Oswald, played by Ethan Hawke, investigates a series of murders hoping to write his next bestseller. But as he sits alone in his dark room, whiskey by his side, the darkness of his study begins to creep throughout the house, infecting and potentially dooming his entire family. Uh, allegedly, Derrickson's original cut of the movie was much more subdued, and it was very much like those terrifying scenes where Ethan Hawke is just sitting alone and watching these Super 8 movies that are absolutely terrifying and all atmospheric and whatnot and maybe the studio like forced him to put in jump scares i don't know if that's true or not i mean the way that studios are talking to these horror movie filmmakers like 1000 percent, regardless of like how many <laughs> or whether or not they use the words jump scares they probably definitely said mm, no needs to be more scary I almost yeah, it needs don't more buy Hollywood. it. It was only one year after the thing 2011. So <laughs> I, I almost don't really buy that explanation though, because I feel like the jump stairs are so overly deliberate in this movie and so effective. I'm not sure they could have happened otherwise. For they're instance, effective? They're very effective. The lawnmower jump scare scares everybody. Oh, that one is not great. that one. Yeah, not that one. And more it, the ones in with like the creepy kids and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah, the, the creepy kids are the low point of the movie, even though they're actually pretty creepy. But they are the low point. I think I think they 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 do creepy things. I like when Ethan Hawke is walking around the house and they're like stalking behind him, but he can't see them. I think mm. that's awesome. It's like, oh no, there's this thing right here he can't see. When they jump scare you, I don't give a shit. When yeah. we're in the room with the his daughter and you just 
pan over to reveal that she's drawing the the monster and there's the creepy girl in the corner I'm like no that that's like if i saw that when i was five i would totally have nightmares of a creepy kid in the corner whispering to me yeah that my parents yeah. can't see um but they look bad they have like terrible makeup <laughs> yeah that's they really don't, what they it don't was for me makeup, right? yeah i'm it's like bad let's makeup. not spend time like on close-ups of them let's no please like don't yeah. don't give them more screen time they're scarier if they're more elusive it looks like a last minute add-on because it's also shot very differently than a lot of the movie all the the super mm. eight stuff there are no special effects mm. it's i mean there are no visual effects it's all done practically there is actually a man dressed as a demon sit- standing at the bottom of that pool they actually drag families into this pool. Uh, hmm. Stunt people, of course. Uh, they actually had to fire a stunt coordinator because he uh, fucked up the hanging scene and almost uh, seriously hurt some people. Really? Uh, thankfully, yeah. they caught it in time. But Jesus yeah. Christ. <laughs> that, hang, that hanging scene was bad. Um, Dude, those Super 8 films, they did so well in them, and I'm so happy they did practical effects. I mean, I, to, I watched this movie with David, and, um, I mean, the whole entire what first five minutes of the film are the hanging uh super eight mm-hmm. film and i'm just screaming at the tv like i don't want to watch this i'm not I, like i did not <laughs> willingly subject myself to watch a snuff film like this and yeah. i remember like having that same visceral reaction when i first watched this film as well like i did not sign up to watch snuff movies i signed up to watch horror and there's a big difference and i like almost find it offensive that the filmmakers believe that horror fans will like be okay watching these snuff films well it depends on the horror fan i think but yeah but uh, not all of them are just gonna be like yeah yeah. i'm into that shit mass murder yep put me down well snuff films are scarier than horror movies They, they they hurt more and things like soundtracks and whatever actually detract from the fear uh, you could argue that as good and as interesting a drawing as the soundtrack to this movie is, those snuff films would have been more effective without a soundtrack. Mm-hmm. I actually, for some reason, every time I think about this movie, I remember them without a soundtrack. And I'm always surprised to watch it again and realize that they, they have music going on there. But going back to what Devin said about the snuff films and it being offensive, I actually, om- I mean, I see where you're coming from. And, like, yes, content warning, for sure. At the same time, I almost think it's... You could argue that it's offensive to portray mass murder in other movies in a way where it's more fantastical and and more played for cheap thrills and whatnot. This movie does not do that. It doesn't make you Mm. comfortable with the concept of murder. It's very much like, no, this is disturbing you should not be into this 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 right I th- and that's interesting because by putting ourselves in that mindset of like no you're supposed to be creeped out by this murder this is supposed to be bad you're not supposed to like this it puts us in the opposite um mindset of what ellison is throughout the entire movie because he is fascinated by this he is into this he's comfortable with looking at this stuff which is constantly brought up of like hey maybe ellison you you shouldn't be and maybe you should like be a little more ethical in the way that you approach this material. It, yeah, that, no, I think that's a really interesting point, David. Um, yeah, I don't mm-hmm. know if comfortable is the word I'd use to describe mm-hmm. his relationship to them. But yeah, he's drinking constantly while he's watching them. His wife mentions that his drinking always gets worse when he's writing a book. 
mm-hmm. and that it's worse this time even than usual. He's he's not comfortable. He's terrified, but he's doing it anyway, and he doesn't call the police because he wants to write a bestseller. They make that point specifically that he he does think about calling the police, and then he looks at his old book from ten years ago, the only good thing he's ever written. He's a shit writer, by the way. Uh, they they make it clear he's a shit writer because he he talks about like oh no one likes no one wants to read my fiction, so. <laughs> He can't write anything for himself. He needs other ideas. Well, that doesn't mean he's a shit writer. That just means he's a journalistic writer and better. You can't make that claim. There's plenty of good journalistic writers. He's only written writers. one good journalistic book, though. Yeah, no, no, no. He, he just got it wrong. Well, one bestseller. That doesn't mean the other ones are bad. And that's a pretty high bar to compare yourself to. The only thing that they reveal in um, Kentucky Blood, which is his bestseller, is that he just found something the cops didn't, and that makes it a unique story. We don't get to hear what those other crimes were that, that he wrote the other books about. Maybe they were just procedurals and nothing like was astounding about them. Well, well, they do. The sheriff does claim in the beginning that he made a wrong assumption that led to some damaging evidence supporting uh, a, like a wrong conviction or something. What's interesting, one, one of the things about this movie is that it, it directly um, attacks that problem of like what is journalistic integrity and what, what is the integrity of filmmakers when um, dealing with this time material. So I mm-hmm. think it is absolutely deliberate that the footage looks as if it's real. And what they do by that, the way they achieve that ends is by using lower resolution footage and like lower, lower end film stock, Super 8, because you get this kind of like nostalgic... Um, it's reminiscent of home movies. Easily and, if you were to kill people while doing it. Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. If you were to kill people while doing it, it would, it would in effect, be better than what the movie was showing. You know? So, I, I don't... And honestly... Don't try this at home, kids. To, to your content warning comment, uh, like, there is a content warning. It's called a rating system. So, like, those are in movies. Oh, this movie was actually so hard. Fuck yeah. They actually shot this movie trying to get a PG-13 rating. Like, they're... There are no F-bombs or very little F-bombs. There's not a lot of gore. There's no nudity or even reference to nudity. And the MPAA just watched movies and said, nah, this is rated R because it's fucking scary. Yeah, in fact, it's like, remember when that article came out? Um, I forget forget who reported on it, but... um, they did a scientific study a few years ago about what is the scariest movie, and they did it purely so based on like heart rate and images that the movie elicited. I don't know that sped up people's heart rate, and this this was the one that was the scariest movie ever over Exorcist, over Psycho, over any other film that's ever been made. They were like, no, Sinister like is the scariest movie ever. Period. I gotta say, Sinister made me jump a lot more than almost any other movie in the theater. And I think a lot of that is kind of due to the jump scares. I know you guys didn't like them, but there are, most of them are really effective, except for the ones without the kids, like the lawnmower, for instance. But another really good one is when that was absolutely deliberate. I don't think it was added after the fact is when he's in the attic and Boogie's face comes into the screen, which watching it's it at home dumbest did not, part of the movie. Watching <laughs> it, no, you're wrong. That was a really good part of the movie. And when I saw it in the theaters and you see the head coming to the screen, it's a gigantic head. And it's much more effective than when I watched it at home. I also knew that it was coming, so it's a little bit different. But I got to tell you, people were screaming in the theater when I when that scene happened. I That's jumped out cool. of my seat. It was a really good scene. And a lot of it is due to, like, Ethan Hawke's acting ability. Yeah, I mean, Ethan Hawke fucking, like, dominates this movie. I love his acting in it. I mm-hmm. Was this—because he did, like, a, several horror films— 
over the past decade was this like the first one of his that he that started that train i forget if this was first or after before or after the purge this was before the purge i'm pretty sure was it yeah Um, the director made a really interesting point i think it was the director and the writer actually made a really interesting point that they liked ethan hawk in this role because it was around the time that he was trying to like reclaim fame in his own career which then further connected him to the character of ellison who is Mm -hmm. also trying to reclaim fame and i thought Mm -hmm. that was such an interesting casting choice he's also an actual he also has written novels um, and screenplays. He's he's credited as a writer on the uh, before whatever series. Uh, well, he looked very rather writerly sweater. with his sweater and glasses. And, and, Dude, that's and his name. Glasses. Harlan Ellison is. It's. I mean, it's a not Harlan. It's Harlan Ellison Oswald. It's a reference to Harlan Ellison and Patton Oswald. Yeah. Shut well, the fuck up. Why? <laughs> Um, so back to that jump scare, the the reason, I mean, yes, it's an effective jump scare the first time you see it, but it is, it's just a startle. For me, the image that lingered with me that, like, uh, was the smaller moment when the demon first churns its head inside of the picture. Yeah. That was the moment where I was like, holy fuck, it's real. Yeah, but that was kind um, of a jump scare too, right? A little bit, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah, a lot of jump scares. Music at that point. And the other jump scares, when the ghostly arms appear over his shoulders of the children grabbing him, pulling him in when he was going through the footage also. That's the jump scare that Ethan Hawke sees that freaks him out when he shuts it down. But right. but to me, that's, yeah, no, that's one that of the one, lesser ones in the movie. Was that a jump scare? Because that was, he's in the attic, we don't see anything. Then he looks at uh, something is recording him that he couldn't see, and that's where he finds those ghostly hands in the image. And that's also creepy because it's like, oh, we didn't even realize this presence existed when we were watching the scene. Um, yeah, I, I would have to watch it again, but I kind of remember it being a jump scare. Maybe it was. Um, I think you're right. It, it's the idea that the media is coming out to get you, that what he's watching is affecting him. And then it's like, oh, you think you're watching this and you're you're affecting it right because it's in the editing program so he's like actually cutting it editing it and changing the media but what's actually happening is the media is affecting him more so right i so like that like, that, like it, right? um that bagul has i don't know why i said it in that, that accent but now it's awesome say it like that every time <laughs> that bagul has a power over the imagery over the uh photography if you will he lives inside the images it's it's yeah. not even a picture of him it is bagul yeah, there's. it's explicitly stated by the professor that he speaks to later on in the movie that Bagul lives on through these images. That's why it was so difficult to find them. And the images are of a, what it, it's a, it's a dog, a scorpion, and what else? A snake? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And th- those are like his images and that when you perpetuate those images, you give power to the curse in the same way of the ring of Ringu, where when you copy the videotape, you're giving power to the, the girl. Um, in this way, you're giving it to Boogie. I know it's Bagul, but they call him Boogie in the rest of the movie with all the pictures yeah. and all that stuff. Because he's the boogeyman. He's the boogeyman, yeah. He eats children. I also tie him in with the Pied Piper a lot, that he lures children away. Um, and oh. that's the other thing, actually, is that it's it's not only that it's affecting Ellison, it's also affecting his family. That uh, there's a moment, there's a bit in the beginning of the movie where uh, his wife is like, what's our rules? And the kids are like, we don't go into dad's study. Wife goes, mm. and? And I was like, oh, yeah, I've got to lock the door. 
Mm. And it's, it's this entire idea that his work is always leaking out. It's always affecting his family. Mm-hmm. No matter how much he thinks it's separate, no matter how much he thinks that this is something aside from his family, it is still infecting them. It's still poisoning his children. Okay, yeah. I, I tried to find this really quickly when I watched it, but I, a lot of the time he would leave his office and the door was wide open and the video footage was on. And since he's yeah. drunk, it leaves the viewer to think, oh, is he doing this? Like, is this his own doing? Or And later we find out it's all supernatural. But it seems like as much as he's trying to lock the door and keep all those things inside, Boogie and the rest of the children are opening it up, right? Like the door, yep. the cat's out of the bag, the dog's out, whatever. He's also walking around with a knife while he's at night thinking like, oh, there's some monster in his house. Meanwhile, his kid's a sleepwalker. It's like, dude, you're going to wind up stabbing your kid. He literally, <laughs> like, after it's revealed that his kid is a sleepwalker and that he is sleepwalking still like he's he's out there yeah he goes out with that knife and i think stabs something oh yeah he like rips open into a box and it's like your kid was literally just in a box what are you doing (laughs) it's 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 uh it's definitely a a little bit of a mistake on the writer's part to allow that i remember rob and i had an amazing conversation about that last year oh Um, interesting but i also i also think it's a very deliberate point that he just like is not thinking about his children like literally ever throughout this and i thought it was such a good um going back a little bit to what you were saying david the the choice of the director to live so much from ellison's point of view through this film until a certain point we like forget about his family almost and we we don't see how this Mm -hmm. is actually um affecting his family they talk about it they tell him like in the very very beginning the wife says if this goes wrong, I will divorce you. And then they laugh and cuddle and go to bed. And it's like, <laughs> what it's, the fuck? Like, really... this is actually a lot more fucked up. And this is affecting the family a lot more than we see. But because we're seeing mm-hmm. it through Ellison's eyes, we just, like, don't notice it. And we don't notice that, you know. And actually, I, I don't think that it's a paranormal presence that it leaves the door open and leaves that tape playing. I think it is the daughter. Because She's at saying... some point, she oh. watches those films. And mm-hmm. Bagul oh, does get yeah, That makes sense. That's pretty cool. But he doesn't catch her. I think the thought did occur to me, actually, that it it was on because the kids were watching the tapes. Yeah, and he literally just, like, doesn't see them. Like, literally just yeah. does not see his children in that room. Yeah, yeah, it's worth every mentioning time. That also the, it's also worth mentioning that uh, Trevor's sleepwalking is implied to be a direct result of him being haunted by his dad's work. Not exactly. even this project. Absolutely. Like, all his work in general. Mm-hmm. Um, they're always being run out of town. The locals always hate them. The police are always like, ugh, this fucking asshole. And then they pull him over when they're driving his five miles under the speed limit. Because everyone hates these people. And everywhere to go, kids are bullied at school. Um, wife, it's, it's meant, the, the kid mentions, like, it doesn't, you don't need to tell me what your book is about because the kids at school will tell me. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's why he's drawing, oh, I, I would argue that we do see it affecting the kids a lot through the uh, we do the sleepwalking, and then again the whole uh, argument about his son draw- Trevor drawing the kids hanging from a tree and permanent marker yeah, on the whiteboard, which is pretty funny. And then also the daughter drawing stuff in the uh, the hallway and whatnot. Um, right, we don't but- see it till it's too late. I, I kept thinking the kids watched the tapes too. Every time the door was open, I was like, "Oh, the son's gonna watch it." And then the son wasn't watching it. And you're like, "Oh." And it was really like reversing our expectation, which I, I thought this movie does a really good job of reversing our expectation about what's going to happen until the end, which 
the ending feels inevitable, thus it's predictable. Yes. Mm. And I that's really that. the low point of the movie. It also, the ending goes on for too long. Yeah, I agree with that too. Ha- have either of you had like night terrors or, or slept walk ever? Mm-mm. I've had sleep paralysis. Okay. I've had both when times. I was younger. And it, wow. it's, it's pretty interesting. Uh, they get it pretty good. Um, the kid Trevor. Uh, yeah, I used to walk outside. I used to pee on things. Um, <laughs> oh, to, shit. Um, yeah, there were only a few times where I like screamed and like freaked people out. I, d- I didn't do that very often, but I used to sleepwalk constantly. Yeah, there are a few times in my 20s where I even slept walk and was like, whoa, I can't work these hours anymore. So then I stopped and I haven't done it in like eight, eight or nine years. But uh, sleepwalking is really dangerous. Extremely. Yeah. Yeah, there, yep. there's there's a very silly uh, low budget comedy that's all about it. I think it's called like Sleepwalk with Me or something. Great um, movie. Oh yeah. yeah, you know what I'm talking about. That's where the guy, yeah. I love is that a stand-up movie. comedian. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's actually um, produced by horror producers. Oh really? Yeah. Really. Hmm. Sorry. Yeah, Mike Mike Birbiglia. He's an actual sleepwalker in real life, and mm-hmm. he it, the movie is largely autobiographical. Mm. Uh, it's really good. I like it a lot. Yeah, Derrickson said that he slept walking like peed in the dryer and stuff also when he was wow. a little kid. And like, <laughs> that's the kind of things I used to do. And I don't think I sleep talk anymore now, but I, I did up until a few years ago and whatnot. It's a bizarre experience, especially when you sleepwalk and then you wake up, you're like, how the fuck, where am I? And you're like downstairs in your house. You're like, it's, it's very um, disorienting. How do you guys feel? Because I, I feel like, a lot of the themes in Sinister are like the same as the themes in Ring. And I think that their terror comes from a very similar place of how they're both very meta that you're watching a horror movie. How do you guys feel? Hmm. Yeah, I would say they're very, very similar in about, you know, like work versus family life. But I think Sinister makes it a little more personal. It feels like a very, like, it feels like the writer and director are pretty much saying like, this is my scare that... I am going to make a good movie or write something amazing and then never be able to to live up to it. And that my obsession with trying to live up to that is going to then harm my family or harm anything else outside of work, um, which is a little bit in the ring, but it's so much more personal and sinister. I hadn't mm. even thought of it in relation to the filmmakers themselves. That, that's really interesting. Did I, do you know if they have families if they have children they commented on on it a little bit in the in the um commentary on on sinister that yes this was in fact a fear of theirs um but i think it 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 plays pretty pretty strongly in sinister regardless um of their commentary yeah yeah especially from like a writer's standpoint i think um ringu uh covers a lot of the same fears of like neglecting your family through like an over over uh, excessive work ethic but um sinister makes it specific about creating art or writing or whatever mm-hmm. that yeah you become like specifically obsessive with that horror. yeah specifically horror writing but by the same token it's both i think even more clearly it's journalistic writing uh which yes. they're both about journalists in a way yeah. both movies yeah yeah and um, they're both tackling pretty pretty horrific subjects i will say horrific subjects not horror again going back to my point true crime is not horror and horror is not true crime they are two separate that's things. fair that's very fair <laughs> yeah but you can make um, a horror movie out of a true crime both movies really deal with uh, journalistic integrity and how you can take this 
when you legendize or fictionalize or sensationalize a horrific event, uh, there is a danger of hurting not only the people that were initially affected by the event itself, but the yes. audience themselves. Yeah, it's in how you tell that story, right? Yeah. Yes. In both cases, it's the the child winds up watching the the mm -hmm. cursed image mm -hmm. and becoming infected themselves. Um, in I, I'd say one of the differences that in Ring it is that the image is what's going to hurt the child, whereas in Sinister the image possesses the child, which I think is even more directly applicable to horror films which mm -hmm. we're watching right now that oh what if this image inspires you to do uh terrible things um yeah which i, could I you don't define think that's... possesses versus can you define that difference because yeah if the ghoul is the image does he possess the child or does he affect the child like yeah can you just explain that a little bit more i think it's not clear actually um there's a point that i scribbled down which is probably just a mistake by the filmmakers that mm -hmm. uh we see ashley is the girl's name drawing uh one of the pictures at the end and we've seen the series of drawings but they're all like the same style and the same uh calligraphy so i wrote like oh is this a mistake or is it that it's actually bagul is drawing through her mm. um and i think it's not clear it, it could go either way i mm don't think she would have murdered her family if without supernatural influences i don't think it's just he's just bringing out a darker side of her he, he is planting these impulses into her mind yeah okay so that is really interesting and and i do think you're right i don't think it's clear whether or not it's direct possession or just like a demonic influence but on a metaphorical level i wonder if the filmmakers realized what they were kind of saying is that um violent images do affect children in adverse ways and that's kind of what this movie is right i think they know that's what they're saying yeah but which makes it more interesting is that they're trying to push it for pg-13 which is like on the one hand <laughs> you're saying oh violent images affect kids let's get a younger audience so we can affect them more yeah. it's kind of like come on dude like where's your ethics here right now i disagree i don't think violent images are going to make you perform violent acts I'm and wondering. it's not really fair to say the movie does that because i watch tons of horror movies and i never killed anybody um i mean i don't know I about know. david but i don't think Devin killed anybody either so i don't i'm not so sure about that <laughs> <laughs> i'm just smiling yeah <laughs> that's a really interesting point rob I think a lot of the time, too, this movie is pointing the camera back on the viewer, um, very specifically with a shot that's reused several times throughout the film. And I love this shot, too, is when the projector is playing and the camera moves around to look directly into the lens of the projector so that the audience, supposedly in the theater, watching it through projectors, like staring at themselves in the like watching them watching the thing watching itself and then i think immediately after that it cuts to um, a close-up of ellison's eyes where you see the reflection of the um super eight film in his eyes and i'm like that is so cool it says so much about voyeurism it says so much about like hey maybe you should take a look on how you're watching films like this or how you're watching other um media that is violent so maybe it's less about like um 
we need to get kids in to watch these films, but more it's like we need to get kids thinking about how they're watching these films. Yeah. yeah. And voyeurism is really key here. Um, I mean, in both cases, again, it's the, the image itself is what's coming alive. And whereas with the Amityville horror, I watched that, but then I'm just like, well, I don't live in that house, so I'm safe. Mm-hmm. But these movies, <laughs> like, oh, well, I haven't watched that. Wait, I have watched that. Am I fucked? Yeah, yeah. There, yeah. There's this sense of a ticking time bomb in both movies. Uh, whereas the one, it's it's a hard time bomb. It's You have a week. And like you said earlier, it's like after you watch the movie, you're like, well, should I be concerned? It's been three days. Do I only have four more left? <laughs> in, uh, in Sinister, which I, I all right, I, I'm going to say I do think this is a cheap cop out. It's when you move from the house, it gets you. Not the house. Once you leave, it's like, okay. It makes no sense. It's, it's really like, silly. They're, they're, and, and it also seems like very easy police work to figure out, oh, wait. These yeah. guys lived in that house where everyone died, and those guys lived in this house where everyone died, yeah. and these yeah. guys, oh my god. It's like they would piece all these together. people had mortgage payments. It's not like a difficult <laughs> thing to say. It's not like they're like... And like, how did Ellison not figure it out? And also, it's said that it will kill you as soon as you move. So mm-hmm. they've all just moved. So I was like, oh, they just got here. I wonder if they had, if it's anything lingering from where they lived previously. Where they lived previously. Oh, wait, there's a family that also all died there, and the child went missing. Huh. Oh, they had also just moved in. Where did they come from? Oh, fuck. This is all connected, isn't it? Yeah. Um, And also, like, for some reason, the murders are all, like, decades apart. And I don't understand that either because it doesn't... Like, like, as soon as Ethan Hawke moves, he finds the tapes. Bagul wants him to find the tapes. So why 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 are the murders all decades apart it makes no sense because because no one moved into the house where everyone got killed till decades okay. later that that's kind of what they're hinting okay. at there um which you know i i sure. do think a lot of people would move into a house where someone was murdered um uh, i probably would i don't believe in the supernatural so whatever also the problem with that cop out at the end for me is that i think it actually kind of undermines the themes in some ways um you do? I mean, I, I think what they're going for with it is that it is a cool subversion, which Insidious did better. Um, <laughs> that moving away, that you always think like, oh, why don't they just move away or whatever? In this movie, okay, well, they moved away, but they're still fucked. Uh, but Ellison took the lesson. He said, okay, this isn't working. I'm going to burn these tapes. I'm going to mm. leave this mystery unsolved. I'm going to back out. And he does that, and it gives you that ending. And then it's just like, oh, well, that doesn't actually doing that is the problem. He would have been better off to just continue to indulge in this. Yeah, mm. it's it's a big hole and it bothers me a lot. But then there's also this thought that him burning the tape is also him ultimately believing that this thing is real. When we spent the entire movie watching him doubt that the paranormal exists and him telling himself that the paranormal doesn't exist. and But him doing that act then admits that it exists. Right? Yeah, well, yeah, but I sure. think his character was was sort of convinced that the paranormal did exist when he's talking to Officer So and So and Officer. No, he so-and-so says specifically like, in that scene, "I do not believe in this shit. I just don't know what's going on." Yeah, yeah, he he's says that, but he's trying himself. to convince himself. He's trying to well, convince and himself. Exactly. Yeah. And this whole movie then, is fine, spent yeah. watching Ellison try to convince himself of things that aren't true, trying to convince mm-hmm. himself that he's a good writer, trying to convince himself that he deserves fame, trying to convince himself that you know. um 
he's better that, that, that his work is better than his family he keeps trying to like tell himself lies keeps trying to overcome the doubt of himself but ultimately in the end needs to accept that hey buddy stuff's happening pay attention stop trying mm-hmm. to like make it about yourself stop trying to like preserve your self-image and uh yeah preserve your self-image he puts his work aside self-image. he commits to not even he, he even commits to not writing the book mm-hmm. which like it's it's one thing to say i'm not gonna continue solving continue following this mystery it's another thing to say i'm not even going to write what i've already learned because you yeah. could still write a book you could just say and then i was terrified and i'm convinced this is real so i backed out of that and if you find this stuff like don't watch it yeah like, but could see still that's that, it but he didn't if he... he doesn't know and that's that's good i like that right that harkens back to the curse wanting its own legacy. You anger it by indulging in it, but then not passing it on. So we thought, yes. well, like maybe if he had continued to write the book, he would have been better off, right? Just as she's better off when she passes oh, on the knowledge of the video tape. Yeah. yeah, this is kind of connecting your ideas. Like you guys all help me put this together, you know? Yeah, both um, of the movies are saying very similar things. Both of them are yeah. struggling the the legacy yeah. of your work versus the legacy of these are your children. Your children are your legacy. Ellison's wife even says that explicitly. Yeah, yeah she and does. and then he yeah. immediately like argues with that point, and he's like, "No, <laughs> what does she say? She's like, if if your children aren't your legacy, then what is?" And he's or or he says, "Then what is?" Like it's like she's like your children, obviously your legacy. That's Ashley and Trevor. Your kids are your legacy. But she also says she also says this book isn't for us; it's for you. There are other ways to be for it provide for your family and then he literally screams back at her like what like what what else do i need to, like what else do i need to be doing it's his children are what's really the thing and that happens mm-hmm. in rangu as well that it's uh it's about coming together as a family she at some point she's no longer following <laughs> the story she doesn't care anymore about writing an article on this or whatever now now she's just uh, trying to save her child. There's a line in Ringu where Ryuji asks Asakawa, uh, is Yuichi okay alone at this hour? And she replies back, he's used to it. And mm-hmm. at first I'm just thinking like, oh yeah, he's concerned because they're out really late. But then after that I realize, wait, wait, no. He means like, is Yuichi going to be okay if he's alone forever? Oh, that's, that's, that's scary. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know what's kind of... It goes even further, I think, talking about the the influence of work and, and media on the viewer in that in both movies, when the families all come together is when the worst things happen. I mean, the reason they get brought together is it, it, it's I don't, I don't I think it's not that the images are bringing them together. It's that they've reached a point where they kind of have to take account of themselves and they have mm-hmm. to really look at what their priorities are. Mm-hmm. And they have to realize that their family is more important to them than this horrific work that they are doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, now we're ready for my favorite part of the show, which is the bone review section, where we rate each film on a one to four bone scale with half bones in between. Starting us off this week is David B. Jacobs. Cool. I'm going to give both of these movies three bones. Like I said with Sinister, I think there are a lot of problems with the movie. I think the script is pretty bad i mean there's there's some good stuff in it but it's also like has really terrible hammy dialogue which can be distracting thankfully there's not too much dialogue in the movie and i think that the more generic hollywood scares really hold back the movie 
But the stuff that does work works really fucking well. And it is a scary fucking movie, and I like it. <laughs> With Ring, now's where I'm going to compare it to the American version, uh, which a lot of what we've talked about applies to both movies. They're thematically very similar, aside from the ESP angle. And the fact that in The Ring, uh, Naomi Watts' character, Rachel, is like addresses all the issues that I have with Asakawa in the Japanese one. That she actually remains like a, a strong, independent person. Like she has a reason to go to her husband that he works with film editing, so he's able to help her. Uh, but she is still in charge. She is still making, calling all the shots throughout the movie. And that's the thing that really works better in the American version is that central character. But uh, while I do think the American version is well shot and that it, it I, I actually think it is well directed, uh, the Japanese one I think is better shot. It, it mm. is more well shot. It, it, it has much more interesting filmmaking in it that I think is, I don't know if it's scarier. It might be scarier. They're both scary in like slightly different ways. But I mean, in both cases, it is that moment seven days later where you just got to like, Am I, am I about to die? Am I good? And, I mean, yeah, it makes you scared of your fucking TV, which is awesome. Uh, I went away for a water in the middle of the movie. I came back, my my laptop had, like, turned dark or whatever, and I'm about to wiggle the mouse. And it's just like, if I wiggle this mouse, it's going to be a nice shot of the cottage, or is it going to be that fucking well? <laughs> <laughs> Devin? I'm going to okay. I'll start with the with Ring because um, I like everything that David said. I'm not going to compare it to the the American version, um, but I'm going to give this three bones. I really really liked this movie, and actually I realized this is my first time watching this version of it. Um, so that was really fun, and I think yeah, it's a lot creepier. It's it's a lot more still, and I really liked that. And like I said at the beginning, there was just something that I was just captivated from the first image and that first scene. It was so strong, um, and I really, really liked it. So three bones for me for Ringu. Um, I'm going to give Sinister two bones. I don't like this movie. <laughs> wow. I, I, I really don't like this movie. What I do like about it, uh, like David said, the, the writing is atrocious, the directing is pretty well done because of the fact that he chose so many wonderful department heads. The art direction, beautiful. The cinematography, beautiful. The music, awesome. The editing, great. Like, literally all the departments, fucking killer. Ethan Hawke, stellar. Great casting choice. The thematic execution, great. Everything the director chose to do, awesome. Except for the writing and ultimately this movie falls flat in the screenplay and so for that i give it two bones interesting so i'll also start with ringu uh i'm only going to give it two and a half bones i think it's creepy but i don't know it's kind of like the american ring i was not blown away by it i thought it was an interesting story angle but at the end of the day i don't find video cassettes very frightening and little girls don't scare me. I'm surprised. They never have. <laughs> in no movie am I ever scared of a little girl, especially with like wet, floppy hair. Yeah, so that gets two and a half bones for me. It's a good movie. 
Uh, Sinister, I'm going to give three bones. I think Sinister, for the first like hour and ten minutes, is like one of the scariest movies I've ever seen. It makes me jump a lot. It's got awesome music that really draws you into the action. It's got really cool character development and uh, acting skills. I don't hate the writing, except at the end. I feel like... Again, the problem with the movie is the little kid angle. The makeup's not good, like you guys said. Uh, They're not very scary, and it spends a lot too much time, like, centered on them. And then, of course, the ending, uh, I'm going to use this line again, because it's inevitable, it's predictable. Up until that point, though, again, it's a really scary movie. Uh, One of the few movies that has effective jump scares, and those snuff films are just fucking awesome. What do you think would have been a better ending? Because that's what I'm also trying to figure out. I agree the ending's anticlimactic. There's an over-explanation. I I mean, for one, leaving the house and then just having that bait and switch. Oh, it's actually the next house that has it. It's just, it's not very, it's not a compelling explanation. I almost wonder, like, if he had just left the house and then if the movie just ends. Mm -hmm. You just don't find out the answer. You know, I almost feel like you can have a movie where you know it's going to happen. Well, no, it's going to happen. It could be really riveting. Yeah. Like, you ever seen, like, Carlito's Way? That whole movie, you know what's going to happen. So I think it's, rather than a failure in writing, I think it's a failure in directing and filmmaking. That you could have had basically the same ending, but just maybe had it happen much faster and just, like, kept the momentum. For some reason, they dropped the momentum when they're leaving the house. But you know what's going to happen after that. There was no need to drop the momentum. You should have kept the tempo increasing. The crescendo should have increased. Yeah, and I think it, it's like... For me, it's that reflection of his choice, though, you know, because he makes the choice to choose his family finally over his work. But then eventually he does turn back to his work by picking up the box in the house. But yeah, it's just slow rolling. Yeah, he goes back to his work. Um, the other thing we didn't mention with Ring is that, well, she it's not she goes back to her work, but she still kind of betrays her family in the end because when, when Yuichi needs to make a copy, but then they also need to show it to someone, she chooses her father of all people to show it to. And this yeah, was why the... did she do that? I mean, presumably she'll explain it to him so that he can also make a copy and just keep the cycle going. So he doesn't have to die. But it's interesting that she makes that decision. Who would you choose? Keep it in the family. <sighs> it keeps in the family. Well, thanks for joining us this week on Cadaver Dogs Pod, where we covered the way media infiltrates and infects our minds through low-res footage. Until next time. Seven days. I have until, I guess, Friday at 10 p.m. I wonder if it starts counting down from the beginning of the movie or the end of the movie. I hope the end of the movie. Because then I have at least like, I would say 90 minutes, but I paused it and rewound it a few times. So I guess somewhere closer to 11.30 on, on Friday night. Yeah, that would be nice. Maybe I would be in bed by then. And then maybe I would die in my sleep. Can Samara kill me in my sleep?